welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Have you ever wondered how much food is growing right now across the globe? Satellite data is for the first time giving us nearly real-time data on which crops are being planted, which crops might fail because of climate impacts like drought or disease, and how many acres of rainforest are being cut down for grazing land. Using this information, we can better prepare for famines, reduce price volatility, and work out how to feed a planet of 9 billion people by 2050. That's no small undertaking, and it will have huge impacts on everything from water usage to soil health. To help us navigate this fascinating new science, I sit down with Dr. Inbal Becker-Reshef, the director of NASA's Food Security and Agricultural Programs. Dr. Becker Reshev is also the co-director of the Center of Global Agricultural Monitoring Research at the University of Maryland. Inbal was recognized by the U.S. State Department for her work on food security and technologies, winning the U.S. Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Science Prize for Innovation Research and Education, awarded by the White House's John Holdren, the former assistant to President Obama for Science and Technology. Inbal's background is in soil sciences and remote sensing, and she received her PhD in geographical sciences from the University of Maryland. Inbal's one of the world's leading experts on using remote sensing for global crop forecasting. In addition to being a genius, Inbal is my cousin and one of my favorite people ever. Inbal and her husband, Dr. Guido Papillo, a molecular physicist, have two amazing daughters, Natalie and Edith. I caught up with Inbal last week in Tel Aviv which is where she was born. Yes, I was born in Israel shortly after I moved to the States until I was five, and then came back from age five to 11, then moved to Kenya, and then moved to the States. In one sense, I feel very much like an outsider. In, a very, in another sense, I feel very much home, like I never left. And it's the first time I bring my two daughters here, which is quite emotional for me for have, to have them here, seeing where I grew up and a big part of my life and who I am. So do you speak Hebrew with them in Baal? I do. I speak Hebrew with them. And so for them, I think it's been uh, an interesting experience to come to a country where everybody speaks what we speak at home and usually nobody else speaks. So kind of our secret language. So it's been fun to, to see them connect and in some way feel very much also that this is a part of, of who they are too. And what things do you miss the most about Israel? The sun <laughs> in the winter, having 20 degrees in January or end of December. The familiarity of people and kind of the directness of people. I and mean, I think I miss that. I also kind of get confronted with it in, in other ways. My friends, really good friends, family, food, vegetables, fruit, the sea. So talking of food, Inbal, one of your, you're like one of the leading experts in the world on remote sensing and crop prediction. Why for you is, is crop and food security such a big issue on a planet which currently has seven and a half billion people on it? Food security is probably one of the biggest challenges we face in this coming century. Today, there's over 820 million people food insecure around the world. 
that number is on the rise again due to several reasons. One is increasing populations and increasing demand on meat. Another big driver has been climate extremes and large droughts. As we look forward and, and different forecasts predict that we need to increase our food production 50% by 2050. And there's some variability around that number. But I think some of what's been driving that is, one, increasing populations, two, increasing middle classes in places like India and China, which means there's a much bigger demand for meat. And if you think about the amount of food you need to produce meat versus um, a vegetarian diet that obviously has big demands, it's quite an alarming trend. And at the same time, obviously, there's a lot of technologies and, and changes in terms of our production. What we need to do is to be able to increase our food production on the same amount of land. So there's not a lot more land that we can really bring into cultivation to meet that demand. So that's pretty alarming, like increasing food supply by 50% by 2050, which is only now 30 years away, without growing the amount of land. How are we going to do that? Part of it is increasing the intensity of, of our cultivation. Some of it has to do with the technology of seeds. And I think we're continuing to see increases in yields, although not as, as fast as that was in the past. Some of the big increases we're seeing today is from increasing the, the number of seasons. And so I think if you look at Brazil, for example, with two maize seasons, that's increased tremendously the amount of food that's being produced. Looking at different varieties and more, whether it's drought-resistant varieties, that's going to get us part of the way there, at least. So your specialty is helping countries knit together analyses of determining what the future food production season is going to look like. Why is that important to know? A lot of what I do in trying to understand what food production is going to be for this current season as it's developing. And that's really important because today our world is, is very much globalized and interconnected. So what's the quantity of, of wheat that's going to be grown in Russia has an impact not only in Russia, but it really has a global impact. That's really important to have transparent information, to have global information of how much food is being produced at, at any given time. That has an impact on how a government decides to, to plan their actions and, and policies. It has an impact on humanitarian organizations and trying to forecast where there might be food shortages and how do you mobilize as soon as possible and has obviously a big impact on, on markets and, and international food prices. Given the importance of all that, how did we used to track it? Whether it's a country that has a system of farmers reporting everything that they grow and tracking it that way, various statistical surveys to make sure that there's a statistical representation to that. And obviously some countries do a better job at that and a better accuracy and a better timeliness than other countries do. I mean, the start of satellite monitoring for agriculture goes back as nearly as early as satellite remote sensing does in, in general. In the 70s and how the U.S. got involved in this, was a big drought in Russia, one of the big wheat production export countries at the time. It was USSR. The U.S. wasn't aware of, of that drought and that impact. And then what ended up happening is the U.S. sold wheat at subsidized prices, essentially, and then had to buy it back in the international markets at much higher prices because there was a shortage. And what that did is sparked a program at the time that USDA and NASA had together called LACI. Um, and the objective of that really was to try to monitor better what was going out outside of the U.S. and the major food production, especially wheat at the time, wheat and corn production. And the idea was is that satellites were really the only way that the U.S. could look at other countries in the world, get an, a, a sense of what they were producing. And if you look today at what the vision is for satellite remote sensing and agriculture, it's not all that different than what it was over 40 years ago. What is different today is our capability to finally reach that goal. So you had this vision 40 years ago of being able to know what another country's crop would yield, like what changed in satellites so that we now 
actually have that granular level detail to be able to know with better accuracy. So a few things. One is the quality of the satellite data itself, the frequency, the resolution. And so resolution, if you think about it, is what objects you can discern on the ground from a, a pixel, which is how we look at the imagery. It's the satellite data being open and free at, at multiple resolutions. New satellites that have come into play, both from the European side, something called the, the Sentinels, which today are imaging the world at 10 meter resolution, close to every three to five days, which is looked along with Landsat satellite, for example, from the US is, is giving us close to every three days view of, of the world. So when you say 10 meters, just to break it down, so that means every pixel is 10 meters. That's right. So it's a 10 by 10 meter resolution. So that means you can discern quite a lot. And, and if you think about looking at the whole world at 10 meter resolution, um, that's a huge amount of information. And so we've had huge advances in terms of the satellite data, also commercial satellite and a lot of CubeSats that are going into space, which are now giving us close to daily data at three meter resolution. And then our compute power to be able to process that kind of imagery and advances in modeling and uh, computational technologies to really be able to utilize that data has been a, a huge revolution in terms of what we're able to do. So we've got all these satellites, new ones. Is the cube ones, those are like really teeny little satellites that are going out? That's right. So they're, I think they're often termed as shoebox-sized satellites. They, they have been sending up in, in fleets, so... I think today there are close to 400 or, or more Earth-observing satellites that are um, called CubeSats. So the data quality is not as high. They don't have as many spectral bands, for example, as, as some of the other satellites. But they're cheap to send up, and they've also revolutionized the space of commercial satellites. So while those aren't free, they're much more affordable than, than they would have been in the past. What are you looking for? Right. So we're trying to basically look at signals of crops. So one of the things we're trying to understand is where are the crops of the world being grown? And there's still a huge uncertainty around that. And one would think that we would know that very well. And, um, and there's still a lot of room for us to improve that. Second of all is which crops are being grown where. And if you think about it, every year that's changing. So there's a lot of crop rotations. And so what that really means is you want to be able, ideally, to know what's being grown in each field during the growing season. So that's one of the, the big objectives is to, to be able to classify um, within the season where things are being grown and to be able to both discern how much of an area is being grown. That's one part of the production equation. And the other side is what the yield is going to be. And so what we want to do, it's really important to have time series of, of data to look at it through time, to look at the evolution of the um, development of crops. But, but when you said earlier that we don't actually know where food is being grown, what does that mean? If you think about it as a map of where the world's croplands, we have several of those maps, but we're trying to continuously increase the accuracy of that. And if you think about crop expansion or changes in where croplands are, for example, Brazil and, and huge expansion uh, of croplands there is really important to be able to update that as frequently as possible, in particular in, in areas where there is a lot of change. We still need better information on where the global croplands are and then more specifically within season uh, crop type maps. We read a lot about the fires in the Amazons, and certainly some of them are being caused by locals and multinationals leveling the rainforest in order to grow things like soybean. How are we able to capture global habitat changes towards agriculture? So there's a lot of work being done on mapping, in particular that, that region of the world. So that means developing models that can detect uh, crop type mm -hmm. and monitoring that every year to see how that's changed. 
I think what we saw this year, and in particular in the, the expansion in the Amazon, has not been expanding as fast as some of the other areas in Brazil, like the Sahado. And generally, the pattern we've seen in that has been going to rangelands and then from rangelands being then converted into soy rather than directly from forest into cropland directly. Often people talk about this global food system, but until I talked to you, I never really had a sense that it was a global food system. Help us understand kind of what that system looks like and what you're particularly sensitive to. The more you think about the global food system, the more complicated it becomes. Like, how do you help unpack it? A lot of what we try to do is provide as much transparency as we can to the information and provide timely information. That means working a lot with ministries of agriculture and working a lot with international organizations to not just give information but translate data into into usable information. We try to provide information, for example, every month on crop conditions, um, working with a lot of different countries to, to try to put this together as a consensus of what current crop conditions are at every month. We're not interested in just developing research and, and tools, but really trying to one, understand who our users are and what kind of information they need, what kind of timeliness, how can they ingest that information, and make sure that we're developing capacity within those organizations to eventually run and use this information on their own for their own needs. And so we spent a lot of time also on, on that transfer of, of capacity of information, in large part within ministries of agriculture. So let's say you're talking to the Chinese or Indian or Nigerian or you know European agricultural ministers like there must be an enormous desire and thirst for the data that you're producing i mean it just seems like without that data it's very hard to operate in our experience there's initial hesitation about this kind of information and i think part of the challenge in remote sensing has often been that there's been over promises of what it can do and i think we need to be realistic about um, what is possible but what we've seen in particular in our work in, in Eastern Africa is that once one country has been able to successfully adopt and, and use this type of information to inform really critical decisions, there's all of a sudden a huge demand across the region to do the same. So who were the early adopters in East Africa? A really good example is the Office of the Prime Minister in Uganda, which a lot of their using is satellite data to, to trigger their disaster relief funding. And what that means is they're able to anticipate a drought in a particular region of, of the country, in this case, uh, Karamoja. They were able to, to trigger this funding mechanism um, earlier than waiting for the, the season to fail. And, and they were able to, I think, reach close to 280,000 people through this program um, and save from their own budget close to $2.8 million. One of the, the things they do now is run something called the, the Crop Monitor in, in a bulletin they call UNews, and that provides, again, this kind of information at a national scale every month on crop conditions across the country. That's accompanied by a full bulletin looking really at different crop conditions across the country, and we've been working with several other countries to develop these as well. How much of the global food system is global, namely food moving around, and how much, as in the case of Uganda, is local issues affecting local government? Like how much of food is moving around and how much is staying put? There's a huge amount of, of trade. And, you know, if you look at kind of the largest, biggest export and, and producers, it's, you know, usually, you know, not a huge amount of countries that produce most of the grain for the world. And so there's a lot of trade, you know, whether it's between U.S. and Brazil and Argentina and Australia, Russia. But on the other hand, there's a lot more regional trade. And so if you look at, at Africa, there's a lot more regional trade in, in Eastern Africa, for example, or in Southern Africa. And so it really depends. And then, you know, in country, obviously, you have areas where you have 
the, the large kind of breadbasket parts of a particular country in areas of deficit. And so there's always movement of food and it depends at, at the scale that, that you're looking at. Both India and China are huge food producers, but also huge food consumers. And so if you look at international markets, they might not have as big an impact as a country like Russia, who is a huge producer, but also exports a large part of, of what they produce. But it's really important to know how much food, for example, is being produced in, in China, because if all of a sudden they're going to have a big shortage or a drought, well, they're going to come to the international markets to import. And so as an example, China revised 10 years of their national statistics going back from 2017, 10, 10 years back by an unprecedented amount, for example, 2017 by 45 million tons of corn. So that's 20% of, of their production, which is a huge amount of corn. And one of the questions we got was, could we discern from satellite data where that additional 20% was coming from, and in particular in terms of, of the cropped area. So there is a lot of uncertainty sometimes around the, the numbers that are available and trying to understand and have a better handle around what production actually is really important for understanding markets. So if you're a farmer in California and you're growing something that's traded internationally, um, whether it's almonds or maybe you're in Kansas and you're growing soybean, are they looking at your data to determine what they should be growing for the upcoming year based on crop failures in other places? Farmers are extremely sophisticated in, in terms of the technologies and the information they're using, whether it's to, to look at their own fields and how do they make their own growing more effective and, and efficient and um, what parts of their field to fertilize and, and when or how much should they irrigate and just looking even at the variability in their own field and oftentimes using satellite data for, for those decisions. And they're also very good at tracking international markets and, and that certainly plays a role in their decisions in terms of what they're going to plant this season and, and obviously policies as well. And increasingly seeing a lot more startups and companies selling services utilizing satellite data to farmers. And what about people... We're just talking a lot about trade. It seems like the, you know, the Chicago Futures Exchange and there's all these future exchanges on every commodity crop. How are prices changing and how are you able to capture the likely changes in prices before they happen? The objective of our work is to avoid as much as possible price volatility uh, to, to the extent that, that that's possible. How is remote sensing data helping reduce price volatility? Part of what it's trying to do is give increase the frequency of forecasts. So for example, USDA provides information globally once a month on their forecasts of, of food production. And what we're hoping to do is to continue to increase the accuracy of those, the timeliness of those, that as early as possible that you can provide information on how a season might turn out is really important to, to be able to inform markets and make sure that everybody has the same information. So a lot of the big trade organizations or big seed companies, they all have their own monitoring systems that they're using and, and oftentimes based on or integrating satellite data into those um, to try to forecast what production is going to be primarily for, for the large production and, and export countries. We got the produce and fruits. We got the produce and fruits. We got the produce and fruits. And one of the like coolest part of your jobs, at least for me, is that you get to work for NASA. So I lead NASA's food security and agriculture program in their applied sciences program. It's called NASA Harvest. It's a large consortium of partners, both universities, government, uh, international organizations. And we primarily use uh, data that's free and open. So all of NASA's data is free and open. The European data is free and open. And there's an increasing trend to make the satellite data themselves 
uh, free and open. A lot of then the investment on top of that is developing tools and information, uh, derived information from those products. Um, and so there's a lot of that in, in the public domain and everything we do, we, we put into the public domain. But there's, of course, a lot of um, private sector and an increasing private industry that's developing tools and, and information products based on those information as well. So do people like Bolsonaro in Brazil and, you know, President Xi in China, they feel like you're spying on them? There's a consensus around it and it's free and open. That benefits everybody and all the big market players and everybody across the market, whether you're a producer or a consumer or um, and, and starting from a level playing field. So I don't think it's seen as, seen as spying. China is more and more moving into sharing their own satellite data as well. So big commodity crops, uh, soy, wheat, rice, what, what else is that? Corn, maize. I'd say those are the big four. How do those big four divide out and how do you see that changing? Like, So, for example, if you look at some of the trade disputes that have been in, in play, in, in, in particular between the U.S. and China, if you look at the production of soy in the U.S., that went way down because of that, but it went way up in South America. I think we're increasingly seeing production of soy and corn um, increasing in, in South America and trade, especially with, with China, on the rise there is a big push, especially when you think about nutrition, to diversify crops and to increase and, and continue to increase also the diversity of crops. Soybean goes into animal feed. And so as you see an increase in the, the demand for, for meat, there's been an increase. What impact do diseases like Asian swine flu have on global markets for crops, you know, that like feed pigs? That impacted a huge amount of the Chinese pork production. And so that actually has re- reduced the demand for, for soy um, because so many of those herds are, are down. So there are a lot of variations in terms of production. We still need to be really careful about not overpromising satellite capabilities and saying they can monitor everything everywhere and give you a 99% accurate forecast of, of food production. But rather they're one tool and one piece of the puzzle in terms of helping to inform what is possible and how much food is going to be produced. Oftentimes I think you know, the remote sensing community has said, well, we've you know, developed these great products. Why isn't anybody using it? And if you're not developing them with your end user in direct collaboration and, and partnership, um, of course, they're not going to be used. And it's not enough to publish a paper and then be done, but you really need to, to think about how do you operationalize this type of information. So it's really important also for the space agencies, for example, to continue and to provide the data and to have a long-term commitment to providing this kind of data. So if a big agency or a government is going to start to use data, they're not interested in using a kind of a system that's going to be there for the next two years and then be gone. So Inbal, what are the missing pieces of the puzzle to getting accurate global crop data? Today, I would say one of the biggest missing pieces still to advance our, our capabilities is the ground data. And so if you don't have ground data to train your models, to validate your models, then any model can have an output. And so it's always going to be an important component of, of satellite modeling and, and remote sensing. Um, and I think that's still a big gap to the availability of ground data to continue to train our, our models and, and to validate what we're doing um, and advance our models and our, our capabilities. So how much AI is using this? Because it just seems like the machine learning and the ability to look at the leaf and the plant type and all those things, like there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's closer coming together of the computer science communities uh, and the remote sensing communities and, and uptake and utilization and advancement of machine learning algorithms for remote sensing and in particular for agriculture. One of the things that you personally were involved in and helped achieve was kind of knitting together all these disparate 
databases that existed country or region by region into a global model. One of the big things we, that we did was setting up something called GeoGlam, and that's an international initiative that was adopted by the G20 on, under their action plan at food security and, and price volatility, and that really followed the big price spikes in 2007 and again in, in 2010-11. It was a really recognition that we had to have a better handle around what's being produced where. And that brought together two important initiatives, one called GeoGlam, and that's one that... Geo is a group on Earth observations, global agricultural monitoring, and that's really focused on the use of satellite data for agricultural monitoring. And the other one is called AMIS, which is more on the economic side of things, and that's the agricultural market information system. And those were two initiatives adopted at the same time. And two communities that have traditionally not worked so closely together, um, and, and we're now working much more closely together, and have seen a lot of benefit coming from that. But both of them basically came to try to help bring more transparency into the information that's available around food supplies, food demand, and monitoring. And, and that's when we uh, developed the, something called the Crop Monitor, which uh, the majority of the G20 countries contribute to, and we provide every month consensus information on crop production for those four main cereals, so maize, wheat, rice, and soy. And then ev evolved out of that was an even bigger demand from the humanitarian community who said, well, there's actually a lot more uncertainty around the countries most at risk to food insecurity, around the information, couldn't we adopt that same approach and develop a crop monitor for early warning, which we did. So when you look at the impacts of climate change, can you scenario those out, namely if temperature in these regions increased by this much, um, rainfall decreases by this amount? Now that you've got a global model, can you kind of understand the global impacts on food supply? One of the key pieces of that is understanding the extreme events. And so rather than saying there's, you know, an average increase or an average decrease in, you know, temperature or precipitation in a particular region, um, what's much harder to forecast are the extreme events and what part of the growing season those are going to hit and then what the impact of that will be going into the future. Um, and I think that still remains one of the largest challenges in terms of looking forward into the impact. So if you know, if you have a, a big deficit of rain and early in the season, that might not have as big of an impact as it would um, during the middle of the season, for example, depending, of course, on the region and, and, and crop. So being able to, to forecast those extreme events within that context of, of climate change is going to be really critical. So you got into this kind of as a remote sensing expert, but now this overlay with food. How do those worlds interact? I actually got into it out of um, with the soil science initially looking at, at soil science and, and then remote sensing and somehow evolved and that was a natural evolution into into monitoring agriculture and started really working with the USDA and trying to to support increased integration of satellite data and NASA data in particular into their monitoring system and doing that working with them recognizing that there are a lot of um, ministries of agriculture and organizations around the world trying to do the same thing and not with a lot of coordination and so that's um, really how I continue to evolve and, and, and get into this field. And today, I think we're seeing a, a lot more attention and organizations and, and governments working on agricultural remote sensing and specifically. So if you had a goal of diversifying, let's say, even within one crop, whether it's maize or corn or soybean, how does that policy get set? And is it at the national level or is it the UN? Like, how are these goals achieved? I think a lot of it is driven by more and more awareness also on the consumer side. And so, for example, you're seeing more and more huge commitments to sustainability 
by some of the the big actors, whether it's on the fertilizer traders or seed companies, for example, whether it is that you have proper crop rotations so that you're not in a monoculture, whether it is that you've planted in the right planting window or mowed at the right time of year and or you're not planting on deforested land, for example. And so I think remote sensing has a huge role and increasing, you know, hopefully a huge role to play in helping to, to both monitor those and meet those sustainability commitments. Can you tell from the satellite data the ability of soil to sequester carbon? Like, can you tell soil health from satellite data? I think you can look at indicators of soil health. So you can look at how well vegetation is growing on soil, for example. And and a lot of what's being done is integrating some of the vegetation information and information from satellites into models that then are, are able to model better soil health. So what keeps you excited in Bal? And I think what really gets me excited is working with policy communities, with decision makers, understanding what the needs are and seeing both the enthusiasm and and the excitement to use this data and and the commitment to it that are helping to inform critical decisions for food security. Does it make you feel like we live on a very small planet or does this very fine level 10 meter pixel data make you feel like we live in a like very very large like how does your view of the world how's it being informed by the work that you're doing on satellites i think those are both really true so i think i'm very used to looking at the globe um and looking at you know how our crop conditions or how are crops evolving at a global scale and you know where are things growing at the same time when you do get down to that field level view um and and zoom in and um, quite literally, uh, feels enormous. And so I think it's it's a very much a mix of, of both of those. And I think it's important to have both of those views. So you really need to understand the details and at the same time have a global view. How do you manage to get all this done? Like you're, every time I talk to you, you're zooming around the world, giving high-powered talks. Like how, how do you manage to fit it all in? When you're passionate about things, you know, you, you make it work. I have a great support and great family and great husband and grandparents and a great team that I work with. Thank you, Inbal. Thank you, Jared. A huge thank you to Inbal for talking with us today. I have to apologize to Inbal because just as we were about to sit down for dinner in Tel Aviv, I hijacked her to record this interview. So thank you for being such a great sport. To me, it's just mind-blowing what Inbal and her team are doing to help us navigate all the uncertainties of growing food for 7.5 billion people, especially when you consider the insane number of variables involved. Inbal's work is giving the world both an early warning system that has already saved countless lives of those most at risk from famine and a predictor of how we can build a more integrated global food system. In the next episode of Podship Earth, I talk to another amazing role model in my life, She's a sculptor who has been honored by the Queen of England, received a doctorate in philosophy from Columbia at 22, wrote the legislation that created the Peace Corps while working for Congressman Henry Royce, and is, of course, my mom, Helene Blumenfeld. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. I hope that you have a truly fabulous week. 